This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. This is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. I have a special guest today as we discuss, uh, discuss a case uh, this is Doug Julian, whose son died in the Uinta Mountains from Hayes. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Doug. Thanks for coming today and talking about this. Why don't you uh, start and just tell us about uh, what happened and uh, some of the details. So I uh, was doing my yard work on a Saturday, and the police showed up at my house and basically gave me the word that my son had passed away. and. I asked what from. I figured, you know, he was on a scout camp um, up in the Uinta Mountains near Duchesne, and I thought that, uh, you know, maybe something unfortunate had happened. He'd fallen off a cliff or, you know, something to that nature. And uh, when they told me altitude sickness, I was like, what? Are you kidding? And I really was fairly ignorant to what altitude sickness was. So at that point, I decided to start learning about it. Because um, obviously it was devastating to me, and I wanted my family to be able to know what it was, and others to know what it was. So, Doug, why do you tell us like, the story of what happened with your son as he uh, left, and uh, what was their plans, and where did he go? So he went to the uh, Chain Lakes area in the Uinta Basin. Um, they ended up camping at ten thousand five hundred feet. Um, we live at 4,785 feet, so it was a about a 6,000-foot change in elevation. And hiked up there and... And uh, the first symptoms were a cough and shortness of breath? Yeah, and he had a, a headache and was feeling nauseated. So um, we'd actually given him some Rolaids to take to help with that, but, uh, you know, that was not nearly adequate. Do you know the elevation that it was when he first started having symptoms? Yeah, it was about 10,000 feet, just over 10,000 feet. And they'd hiked around for a couple of days to different lakes, so they'd gone up and back down. And it wasn't until Wednesday when he started feeling the symptoms. And I believe it started uh, as actually hape and moved into haste at that point. So... Um, so when they told me it was altitude sickness, I was thinking, well, as a kid, I always thought that, you know, climb Everest, you needed oxygen because it was a lack of oxygen. And when I started learning about it, I found out that oxygen is not nearly as big of a deal. The body can compensate for that. It was more of the barometric pressure change that caused the problem. And your son was starting to have symptoms. Uh, tell us what happened that night and the next morning. So he was having symptoms. Uh, he was basically trying to tough through it because he was a tough kid, played football. He was pretty in shape. And he actually hiked up to another lake, went fishing. And when he returned that evening, he was feeling uh, more poorly, I guess is the way to put it. And um, didn't feel like eating much. He ate a little bit. And uh, he retired early, which was not normal for him. And then Thursday when he woke up, he was feeling uh, 
pretty poorly. He just didn't feel like eating much. He was really nauseated. And then um, they did their activities for the day. And again, that evening, he didn't eat much and went to bed <clears throat> early. And um, the next morning woke up and was feeling very, very bad um, as far as he was uh, feeling like he was going to throw up which he did during that day. They were going to hike to another lake that day, and he decided to just stay in camp because he was feeling so badly, and uh, someone stayed with him, and he basically was throwing up. So was this on uh, Friday when he stayed at camp all day? Yeah, it was. Uh, he stayed at camp uh, all day and basically slept most of the time, uh, threw up a few times. And when they returned in the late afternoon, you know, and discovered that he wasn't doing well, um, the color had kind of gone from his, you know, his normal color. He was a little more pale and ashen. And uh, they made dinner, and he chose not to eat any of that because he wasn't feeling well. And here again, um, was going to go to bed early, and the leaders that were with him decided that they should probably take him back, you know, cut their trip short. But because it was so late in the afternoon near, you know, almost dark, they chose to do it in the morning rather than that evening. How far away were they from uh, the trailhead, Doug, or to their cars? So they were 9.6 miles from their cars. And this was not a simple walking trail. This was a pretty steep, rocky, treacherous trail. So it was a tough road to hoe to get out of there if needed be. Did any of them have any medical training or any knowledge of this uh, disease? Uh, one of them was a military, a gentleman that was in the military. He'd been given some, somewhat some training, but frankly, both of them were pretty ignorant to what altitude sickness was and what the symptoms were and how to treat it. How many people were up there uh, total? Uh, there was about six to seven, maybe eight scouts and two leaders at that time. What were the age ranges? So these, uh, the scouts were between 16 and 18 years old. And of course, the leaders were probably in their 40s, maybe close to 50. And all of them were in uh, good physical condition. Yeah, yeah. In fact, one of them was a marathon runner. So it was you know, they're all in good condition. Did any of the other uh, people on the scout trip have symptoms? Uh, well, frankly, I didn't ask that. I don't know, but nobody complained of it. Well, let's go back. So it's Friday night now, and your son is very sick, and the decision's been made to because of the treacherous trail uh, to take him down uh, in the morning. And why don't you start from Friday night and then go through Saturday morning now? Well, from what the, everyone told me there was that um, Doug had a pretty restless sleep, um, but he didn't have the energy to do much other than lay in his hammock. Um, so when the morning came, uh, they quickly fixed up some food. They asked Doug if he'd wanted some. He did take some uh, hot chocolate on board, and then they decided to head down the trail. So... All the other scouts packed up his stuff into their packs so that all he had to do was walk. And they got him up, and he even had trouble getting on his shoes. 
And once they got him up and going, um, they would get him to walk and he would go about 10 yards and then he just didn't have the physical energy or the stamina to go beyond that and he fell to his knees. So uh, they realized that they had a big problem. So the decision was made at that point to send one of the adults down to get help. Uh, The guy that was the marathon runner decided he was the best candidate because he was used to running. And he grabbed a couple of bottles of water and took off running. Not jogging, not walking or hiking. It was a run. He ran nine and a half miles, which is a heroic thing uh, as far as I'm concerned on that treacherous trail. And then the boys were sent down um, after the adult left in, in advance. And then the one adult and one of his friends stayed with him to help Doug get down. And they tried for probably about an hour to get him down. And I think they made about a hundred, a little over a hundred yards of headway. Each time he, he would go about 10 yards and end up on his knees. Just didn't have the, the strength or the ability to go much further than that. So at what point did they realize that he could not walk any farther? Well, uh, Doug kind of made that decision for him. Uh, uh, the last attempt they made to get him to go, they realized he's just not going to do it. And he actually had the wherewithal to say, I just need a minute. I just need a minute. So they moved him over next to a fallen tree and uh, sat him down. And he rested his back against it while they were trying to decide what to do. And all of a sudden they heard a noise and looked over and Doug had actually slumped over and fallen to the side. And it was at that point that, you know, they realized that Doug was, they thought passed out, but he just basically stopped breathing and was done at that point. Um, It was then that they jumped into action. The gentleman that stayed with him was uh, trained in the military. So he started CPR. He and his friend, the, the, friend was his dad so the father and son were doing CPR on my son and uh, they did CPR for about uh, 35 minutes which is amazing because that's hard work and after 35 minutes uh, Doug took a big gasp of air and they were almost hopeful and basically at that point he passed away. So um, this is the point where my wife and I struggled a little bit and I can't be angry with these gentlemen because they were frankly as ignorant as most of the general populace is as to what are the causes of altitude sickness and how to treat it. Um, So they did their best they could to put Doug in a presentable position and an hour later life flight actually landed in a clearing and they were able to you know get Doug off the mountain down to the hospital which is at that point when the police were notified and the 
leader that ran for help. Um, he did run the full nine and a half miles. And then he had to get in his car and drive for half an hour before he had a cell signal. Um, so uh, when he got back to the the clear or the trailhead, the boys were there that he had sent on early, and they saw life light flow over flyover head, and um, they were hoping things were all all well. Um, they later found out, of course, that their friend and uh, neighbor had passed away. So um, anyway. The story you've just told is uh, pretty overwhelming. Uh, it's it's almost unbelievable, and it's hard to um, move on, I think, and ask the next question. But I think at this point it, we should honor your son. Would you tell us a little bit about him? So Doug, um, he was one day before he turned 18, he was a big guy, bigger than I was at his age. Um, he was six foot one, uh, was preparing for the football season. He had been working out all summer long. He was, he was buff. He was pretty cut guy. And, uh, so there was no issues with health that we were aware of. And he, um, was ready for this, um, you know, this trip and, um, Anyway, nobody expected what was going on, so it was at that point that um, we decided, or I decided, that I needed to understand altitude sickness if I was going to move forward. Um, I first heard about the death in the newspaper and uh, was absolutely shocked uh, that such a young person would die of altitude illness in our mountains. Uh, and uh, immediately the University of Utah School of Medicine and uh, uh, people were uh, in at the school were uh, contacted because the community as a large and the scouting community and those people who hike were so uh, undone by this, like how could a person die by just going up into the mountains? And um, it, it generated an enormous amount of uh, public interest in uh, the the Salt Lake City, but also the Utah area, and a lot of people around the country that read about this story wanted to know more. And what was interesting is I grieved then in my heart for the parents of this boy because here you send a son up into the mountains on a fishing trip and he dies just because he went up into the mountains. There was no fall, no trauma, no lightning, no freezing. He just died because he went up into the air. And it was several years later that I received an email from Doug's father asking if he could come speak to my classes. And what, from my perspective, what happened was uh, to prevent other people from having to go through what he did and having other young people or anybody die of altitude, uh, he went out and learned about this and has taken a, on a this crusade to tell people about uh, altitude illness. Yeah, so I decided that I needed to educate myself about altitude sickness. First of all, understand what it was and then, you know, what causes it and how can I prevent it. And then I wanted to impart that 
to others. So I looked on the internet, I looked in any, any resource I could to try and find um, ways to learn about it. And what I found was that there wasn't a lot of information out there that was accurate. And I also picked up a few school books to try and find out if they teach this in school. And the only place that I found that they taught it was up at the University of Utah in their wilderness medicine program. So I decided that I needed to start learning about it so that I could start educating people. And I figured I'd start with the scouts. So I got the uh, scouts and the, the religious organizations that would help me out and got some funding. And we created a video to help learn, you know, people learn about it. And uh, which was later taken off from social media, and I can go into that later. But uh, what I found was that I, frankly, was super ignorant about what it is. And I started learning that altitude sickness is um, uh, uh, something a person gets when they go up too fast. So when you go up in elevation too quickly, uh, that's what's causing the problem. And where I found most of this information was actually in um, Air Force and pilot training. Um, they have experienced it because pilots change elevations very quickly, especially since the invention of the jet engine. And so uh, I started learning about what were the causes. At first, I thought it was because the oxygen had decreased. And yeah, that does have an effect on you. It, it makes your body increase its respiration and heart rate to compensate for the lack of oxygen. But that's not what actually causes the problem. It's the decrease in uh, barometric pressure that causes your cells to not be able to retain the fluid in them because they need that pressure to push nutrients and oxygen in. And... Um, I don't know if a lack of better words, I guess your body starts shedding that fluid from its cells because of the lack of pressure and it puts it somewhere in your body. A lot of times it ends up in your, your extremities, your hands, your feet. Um, but the dangerous part of it is when it starts putting fluid either into your lungs or it can even put fluid into your brain. And those are the two that cause the biggest problem, haste and hape. Um, they're the, they're what cause people to expire from altitude sickness. And it's not known. I, I asked numerous people, many classes, if they knew what altitude sickness was, I'd get a few hands. And when I'd quiz them, nobody would really know what to do and what it was. So my goal was to change that and to start doing training to help people not only recognize what they're experiencing, what the symptoms are, and how to prevent it. And frankly, the easiest way to prevent it is to just go back down in elevation, which is a hard thing for a lot of people to, to get, especially the way we're trained. I mean, we're trained, me, I was trained in football to push through it, to, you know, cowboy up or suck it up or whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, to basically eat the pain and push forward and in out, when you're dealing with altitude sickness, that is actually more detrimental. The best thing to do is go back down so that your body can um, get back to a pressure it can manage. 
and it will acclimatize, but it takes time to do that. And most people want to get up to the summit of a peak or whatever quickly and then don't realize that they're getting ill and sick. And in some cases, such as my son, you know, it can be deadly. Yeah, so um, I mentioned deadly. You know, the best way to avoid this is to recognize what you're experiencing. On altitude sickness, you're usually going to have a headache and probably one or more symptoms such as nausea, lightheadedness. Um, you know, there's a whole host of uh, symptoms that you can get. And if you, uh, you know, take some training on altitude sickness, it'll go through all these symptoms. You need to stop. And if it doesn't stop going up, I should say, in elevation, and if it doesn't improve, you need to go down immediately. Um, in the case of my son, had they not chosen to wait that evening till the next morning, if they'd just chosen to go and hike in the dark, it could have made the difference between life and death. Um, go down immediately. There, there, it, whether it's foul weather, you know, it's dark, whatever it is, you need to go down in elevation. That's the only way to, to stop it. And um, there's no medication, there's no magic pill or anything that's going to change that. It's just to reduce your elevation, basically increase the barometric pressure so your body can start functioning again in a proper way. Shortly after my son passed away, I heard about a woman in Colorado that had also passed away. And so I started looking into her situation and then there were uh, several other accounts that I found, and, and the media doesn't really publish it a lot because it's it's rare, frankly. Anyway, um, the the best way is to know the symptoms, the signs, and be prepared to just turn around and go home. You'll live another day to make that hike again, or you know make that climb again, whatever it is. I know that's hard to stomachs for some people, but that is the best way. It's better than the alternative. So basically, you need to watch for the symptoms. Um, you know, lightheadedness um, may be present, nausea, vomiting, um, inability to speak clearly, maybe even stumbling. Um, some people even say that the person may act as if they're drunk. It's just that their body is not processing the way it normally does. So you need to watch out for those symptoms. Uh, in the case of uh, pulmonary edema, you may start seeing blueness in their lips, their fingers, their toes. You know, there are a lot of signs before you get to the point where it's critical that you can turn around and go back and the body will fix itself. It, it, it heals itself in that manner. But there is a point in which the body needs help and can't make that change. But if you get to that point, you're going to need help. And the best way is to not get to that point. Just turn around and go back down. And basically, you want to ascend slower. Um, a good rule of thumb is to not increase your elevation more than 1,500 feet per day. And if you're going more than two days, you know, so basically you're going up 1,500 feet one day, 1,500 feet the next day, it's to stop at that elevation and wait a couple days to see if any of the symptoms present themselves. And if they don't, then continue on. It's just a matter of going up slower. 
That's how they do it on Mount Everest. It's not that they can't climb that mountain quickly. It's that they trying to protect themselves so they don't die on the way up. They ascend slow, so they acclimatize as they go. Your body will acclimatize to it, but it takes time, and uh, most people are impatient and don't wait. Um, I'm guilty of that in the past, and now I'm very cognizant of it. If I get over 9,200 feet, I can feel the symptoms coming on, and I have to stop and go back down. It's the only way to solve it. There is no side effects if you catch it and return back to a a lower elevation. It it's, heals itself. If I had one thing I would encourage all of you to do is to seek out the learning, educate yourself about altitude sickness before you go, and be prepared to just turn around and go home. It's the best way. So uh, I would suggest that you go to some websites such as altitude.org is a good website. Um, the CDC has a website about uh, altitude sickness. It uh, is a little more entailed and it's a little difficult to follow. Uh, the University of Utah has a great website on their uh, wilderness medicine uh, site and um, you find a lot of information there. That website is uh, www.wildmedu.org. Um, this is the Advanced Wilderness Life Support Podcast, and we want to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, come and talk about your son, about altitude illness. You honor him, and you honor all the people whose lives that uh, you will save by your hard and devoted work. This ends the podcast on this story. Thank you for listening. Thank you.